Good morning, everyone. I will be reading um, the scripture this morning. So it starts with Matthew 25, 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kings and prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or naked, or sick or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into the eternal punishment, but the righteous into the eternal life. Next is 1 Thessalonians 4.13 through 5.11. Um, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus... Sorry, just give me a second. Uh, died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Uh, for this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven and cry of command with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of the Lord. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord and the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware of the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you who are not in darkness, brothers, for the day to surprise you like a thief, for um, you are all children of the light, children of the day. We, uh, we are not of the night or of the darkness, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put the breastplate of faith and love for, and the helmet of hope for self, of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are doing. And finally, Revelations 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne uh, and him who was seated on it. 
From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written on the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up their dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. I'm Charles McKnight, the assistant pastor here at Christ Central Church, and we continue this morning in our explicit lyrics sermon series. This is a topical sermon series on those aspects of the Christian faith that those who hold non-biblical worldviews often find offensive, inappropriate, and even profane. Today's explicit lyric, Jesus is coming back to judge you. Christians believe, and the Bible teaches, that Jesus, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, is coming again. We believe that this Jesus, who came first to this world as a baby, conceived by the, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and born of the Virgin Mary, who was crucified, died, and buried, and rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father today, will come again to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is coming back to judge you. This is what the Bible teaches, and this is an explicit lyric to many. And so we begin this morning by first exploring the reality of the return of Jesus, and then we'll explore the judgment that he will render when he returns. The return of Jesus and the judgment of Jesus. Now, peppered all throughout the New Testament are declarations of the reality of the return of Jesus. And our texts this morning teach us that his return will be personal, sudden, and spectacular. Personal, sudden, and spectacular. First, the return of Jesus will be personal. Matthew 25, 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory. And 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 reads, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Jesus declares in the Matthew verse, and Paul echoes in the first Thessalonian verse, that the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus himself, will bodily and personally return. Jesus himself will return in the flesh, not an illusion of Jesus. He's not going to send some type of divine chief of staff on his behalf. Jesus will personally leave his heavenly dwelling place and return to earth to wrap up the old age and usher in the new. And scripture tells us that this personal return of Jesus will be sudden. Look back with me at the uh, first Thessalonian passage. We'll look at verse five, uh, chapter five, verses one through two. I think that's in the second section of your, in your bulletin. Paul says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
Now, the New Testament details elsewhere that a bunch of other stuff has to happen before Jesus returns, like the preaching of the gospel to all the nations and great tribulations. And it says various signs and wonders and wars and rumors of wars and the coming of the Antichrist. And we don't have time this morning to discuss all the different theological perspectives on what exactly all that means or what has and what has not already occurred. But for our purposes today, know that there will be and even already has been signs and pointers that the Lord's return is indeed on its way. But the New Testament places overwhelming emphasis on a complementary fact that at the end of the day, no one truly knows when exactly Christ will return. Jesus says himself explicitly in Matthew 24 that no one knows the day and hour of his return except the heavenly father. And therefore the return of Jesus will be sudden. And this is why Paul describes the return of Jesus as being like a thief in the night. As a kid growing up in Durham, North Carolina, I had my bike stolen a couple of times by a thief in the night. And anyone that's ever experienced theft know that thieves don't usually send you a warning letter. You don't get an email the day before saying, hey, just want to give you a heads up. I'm coming by tomorrow. You might want to hide your valuables. It doesn't work like that. A thief comes unexpectedly. A thief comes suddenly, and as Scripture teaches, so also will Jesus when he returns. And finally, Scripture tells us that the, this personal sudden return of Jesus will be an absolutely spectacular event. When you think of spectacular entrances, what comes to mind? Maybe it's a football team running out of the tunnel for a championship game. Or maybe it's a bride walking down the aisle at a royal wedding. Or maybe for some of you WWF and WWE fans, it's the epic entrances of guys like Triple H and Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker. I got an amen over there. But for me, the most awe-inspiring, spectacular entrance I've seen was the way the late, great king of pop, Michael Jackson, appeared on stage during his early 90s Dangerous Tour. Y'all remember that? I watched a video on YouTube this past week again. Y'all remember how all of a sudden he popped up out of the bottom of the stage and just stood there. There were pyro effects everywhere. The crowd was screaming and crying and shouting, Michael, Michael, Michael. And the brother hadn't even blinked yet. <laughs> Y'all remember that? And he just stood there with those state trooper looking aviators on and what looked like a chandelier for a jacket. <laughs> and then he slowly took off those glasses and the crowd went bananas. And again, he just stood there bathing in the glory. By the time the music started and he did his first little, you know, <laughs> half the audience was already slayed in the spirit. 
of Michael Jackson. It was a spectacular entrance. But what else would you expect from the king of pop? And likewise, what else should we expect when the king of kings returns? When Jesus Christ returns, scripture testifies that it will be utterly spectacular. Look back with me at Matthew 25, verse 31. Jesus says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. In other words, Jesus is saying, when I come back, I'll be rolling deep with a bunch of angels. I'll be surrounded by a massive entourage of angels. Just imagine what that will be like. You read scriptures and a person sees one angel and is petrified with fear and awe. Imagine seeing a whole host of them at one time. And this angelic presence serves to only heighten the sense of majesty and magnificence and spectacularness of Jesus' sudden return. And scripture tells us that this awe-inspired angelic visual will be joined by the tenor of heavenly sounds. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians passage. And we'll look at verse 16. Paul says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. The return of Jesus will be inaugurated by the sound of a cry of of command, which is the Lord's very own voice, his very own conquering voice, like a commander to troops full of authority and power booming throughout the entire universe. And the angels will be chanting and there'll be this melodious blow from what's described here as the trumpet of God. Understand throughout scripture, the trumpet of God is always associated with the Lord's victory. And this angelic presence And divine symphony of sounds will accompany a scene of unimaginable catastrophic drama induced by the personal sudden return of Jesus. Look with me at the Revelation 20 passage at the bottom, verse 11. The Apostle John says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found from them. When the face of Jesus appears at his second coming, it will be so glorious that either figuratively or literally, the earth and sky will run away, all of it. From Mount Everest to Mount Rushmore, from the Atlantic Ocean to the Great Lakes, every island, swamp, and desert will scurry like cockroaches in the piercing light of his presence. The sun, moon, and stars will melt like birthday candles in front of the sun when the sun, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, personally and suddenly cracks the sky at his glorious second coming. Jesus is coming back, y'all. 
And he's coming back with the grandest, dopest, most spectacular entrance possible. And when Jesus comes back, his first order of business will be to judge the living and the dead. Only God can judge me. This saying was popularized in the 90s among urban youth by the late rapper Tupac Shakur when he released the song, Only God Can Judge Me, on his critically acclaimed All Eyes On Me album. This motto, a spin on biblical verses warning against judgment, has been shouted in verbal defense and even tattooed on the flesh of many urban youth as a bold declaration that I have the right to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, and I have the right to be who I want to be, free of judgment from anyone else. Only God can judge me. And while we may both applaud and challenge aspects of the intended meaning of this phrase, this much is absolutely true. Scripture does indeed declare that only God is and will be the final judge. And when Jesus comes again, he will indeed judge everybody. Again, the living and the dead. Look back with me at the Matthew 25 passage, beginning again at verse 31. Jesus declares, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the Apostle Paul, Apostle John adds again in our Revelation passage, um, back at verse 11 again. He says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. The first thing I want us to notice is that final judgment will be dispensed from what's described as a great white throne. With him, him being the Lord Jesus Christ, seated on that throne. Jesus Christ will be the final judge. Not Buddha or Brahman. Not Krishna or Mother Universe. Not the Islamic Allah or the New Age impersonal life force. But Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lamb of God and Good Shepherd, the true vine and bread of life, the King of kings and Lord of lords, God himself, the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, will appear, as it says, on a larger-than-life throne, a throne that's white with absolute purity and spotless holiness to dispense absolutely pure and holy and perfect judgment. Only God can judge me, the motto goes, and only Jesus will judge me, 
and you and every other member of the human race from Adam and Eve to their last descendants when he returns. Jesus is the judge and everyone will be judged by him. The Matthew text says in verse 32 that before him will be gathered all the nations. And our revelation passage declares in verse 11 that the dead, great and small, will be standing, resurrected before the throne, waiting to hear their final eternal judgment from the mouth of Jesus himself. Now we have another explicit lyric sermon coming on the reality of the resurrection. So I don't want to get too much into that this morning. But know this, scripture teaches that immediately at death, the souls of believers go immediately into God's presence. And the souls of unbelievers go immediately into internal punishment. They don't float around here on the earth. They don't go to some purgatory place. But our bodies, the bodies of the dead, remain here on the earth. But scripture also teaches that our body was created to be with our soul and our soul with our body. And so death unnaturally rips the two apart. So when Jesus returns to judge, he will first bring back together body and soul and resurrect the dead. And all living and dead, all races and nationalities, groups and classes from all the generations of humanity will be standing before the throne awaiting judgment. Kings and sanitation workers, pharaohs and department store managers, apostles and taxi drivers, artists and chemical engineers, dentists and dope dealers, movie stars and mechanics, soldiers and project managers, peasants and baristas, members of parliament and middle schoolers, tech tycoons and stay-at-home mothers, police officers and inmates, Professors and farmers, pro ball players, priests, pastors, pimps, prostitutes, every person ever born ever in the history of creation, the just and the unjust, believers and unbelievers, God's children and his enemies, Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, atheists and agnostics will all stand on the same level waiting their final judgment. Everyone will stand before judge Jesus. And there will be two, and only two judgments that judge Jesus will render. Look back with me at Matthew 25, 32. Let's look at verses 32 through 33. It says, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. There will be only two distinctions made among humanity in the end, and they won't be racially, ethnically, or culturally based. They won't be based on age, class, or gender. So all the generations of humanity will finally in the end be separated by two 
and only two distinctions, sheep and goats. That's it. Not sheep, goats, and cats. Not sheep, goats, and zebras. Just sheep and goats. Scripture is declaring that ultimately in the eyes of God, you are either a sheep or a goat. Now, understand in this ancient Palestinian context, sheep and goats would often intermingle grazing together during the day. But at the end of the day, the Lord, our great shepherd, will put his sheep on one side. It says the right side, the, the side of honor, and the goats on the left side, the place of dishonor. And what you are, a sheep or a goat, will determine your eternal reward or punishment. Look back at Matthew 25, 34. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And drop down to verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. There will be one sweet, glorious invitation to eternal reward and one bitter, inglorious dismissal to eternal punishment. To the sheep he will say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. To the goats, he will say, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Sheep will be rewarded with eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth and goats, eternal punishment in hell. Now again, we have another explicit lyric sermon coming on the reality of hell. So I'm not going to get much into that this morning, except to say, hell is real. Hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment. And hell is the final destination of every goat according to our scripture. And when King Jesus renders his judgments, there will be no counter-arguments. There will be no rebuttals, no second chances. The king will judge, and the king's judgments will be final. So the question becomes, what determines if one is a sheep or a goat? What decides whether one is cursed or blessed? What establishes whether one inherits the kingdom of heaven or eternal conscious punishment in hell? For the answer, let's look back at our Revelation passage, 
verses 12 through 15. John says, beginning at verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The Lord is presented here as a divine bookkeeper, one who has maintained an impeccable record of every individual's thoughts, words, and actions, good and bad for their entire lives. Everything about everyone is recorded in the greatest details in what John simply describes as the books. But John sees another book. He says in verse 12, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And it's this book, the book of life, that reveals whether one inherits the kingdom of heaven or is condemned to eternal conscious punishment. Understand elsewhere in the book of Revelation, the book of life is also referred to as the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb being Jesus Christ. This book then is just Jesus's personal roster of those destined for an inheritance of eternal reward and life with him. Early in my pre-Jesus college days, me and some of my boys used to rent out nightclubs and throw parties to make a little bit of extra money. And some nights, if our game plan worked out the way we wanted it to, we would reach maximum capacity of the venue. And as we would see the capacity of the venue getting close to the max, we would make the decision to only allow in our personal VIPers. Now, this was different than the VIP line where people just paid extra money to get in and sit in a little special section. These would be people who had a prior, close, personal relationship with us, a girlfriend, a teammate, a fraternity brother, maybe a cousin in town wanting to hang out for the weekend. These folks would be able to get in to gain access to the party, not because they arrived early, not because of how much money they were willing to pay in the regular VIP line but solely on the basis of prior personal relationship with us. And likewise, the determining factor of whether we are admitted into the eternal heavenly party is not based on works, but based exclusively on a prior personal relationship with he who stands at the entrance, with the one who sits on the white throne. It is based on a prior personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Entrance into the kingdom in the next life 
depends on your relationship with the king in this life. And this relationship is one had only by grace, not by works, not by showing up to the party early, not by being willing to pay extra money. But as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. So the question now becomes, if this is what determines a sheep from a goat, then what distinguishes a sheep from a goat? What characterizes a life lived in relationship with Jesus? What key piece of evidence reveals that one is a sheep of the good shepherd. Well, there are all kinds of markers in the New Testament of the characteristics of the life of a true disciple. Yet Jesus himself offers a key defining characteristic in our Matthew passage, starting at verse 34. Look there with me. Then the king will say to those on the right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see, see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. What does Jesus say is the key piece of evidence that one has a relationship with him? What lifestyle most defines a sheep over and against a goat? Jesus answers, love for me. Through your habitual acts of kindness towards the least of these, my brothers. Now, some folks interpret my brothers here out of context to mean anyone who is in need. But the expression, my brothers, is reserved in Matthew's gospel most explicitly in reference to disciples of Jesus, those who commit their lives to spreading the kingdom message. Jesus is saying, I know my disciples. I know my sheep by the way they put their faith to work by caring for the physical and emotional needs, not just of all people, but specifically for my other disciples. Now, let me be clear. Scripture absolutely teaches elsewhere that we are to seek the good of all people, not just other Christians. Our hearts should yearn and drive us to pray for and work to see relief and redemption in all creation. Everyone in need is to be a recipient of Christian love and care. Love your neighbor, right, as you love yourself. Yet Jesus declares here 
that for him, the distinguishing mark of a true relationship with him and love for him is your loving care for other believers, for his other disciples. Specifically, he says, the least of these. Least of these meaning the weakest, the most needy, the most vulnerable members of the family of God, especially those suffering for the sake of the gospel. Jesus is saying, show me someone's heart who beats for poor Christians, for suffering believers, for my lonely, marginalized, and ostracized disciples, and I'll show you someone whose heart has been regenerated by my spirit, someone who is truly my disciple, someone who truly loves me, someone who is truly my sheep. Because whatever you've done for these folks, you've done it for me. Jesus is saying that I take such solidarity with my people that your love, concern, and care for them, the least of these, my brothers, is real, actual love and care for me. And the opposite is also true. For Jesus also declares that whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Matthew 25 41 through 45. You can look back there quickly with me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will say to them, answer saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Sheep and goats, eternal life and eternal punishment. Name in the book of life, name not in the book of life. Relationship with Jesus, no relationship with Jesus. Doing for the least of these or not doing for the least of these. There will be two final distinctions, two final judgments, one book, one faith, and one key piece of corroborating evidence. Love for the least of these, my brothers. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is coming back personally, suddenly, and spectacularly. And Jesus is coming back to judge you and me and everybody. To a sheep, those whose names are written in the book of life, those who had a relationship with him in this life by grace through faith, a faith marked by love for Jesus through compassionate care for his most needy disciples. To these, Jesus will declare, come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But to the goats, those whose names are not written in the book of life, 
those who did not have a relationship with him in this life, those whose life is not characterized by love for Jesus through compassionate care for his most needy disciples, to these Jesus will declare, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. If you are a believer this morning, if you are a sheep this morning, then for you, being reminded that Jesus is coming back once and for all to render final judgment should encourage you in at least four major ways. Quickly, first, it should satisfy your inward sense of a need for perfect justice in this world. The world as we know it is sick with injustice. Just turn on the news. Just look back at the narrative of humanity. All of history screens out for world judgment and justice. All creation longs for it. We ourselves long for it as we see and suffer and strive against the increasing wickedness, falsehood, and injustice in this world. The great desire of our souls is the final victory of justice. But brothers and sisters, be encouraged by the fact that the Lord is keeping a precise record of each and every injustice in this world. And he himself will execute perfect and complete and soul-satisfying justice at his return. Jesus will return and make all wrongs right. Yes, we should continue to fight for justice in this world. I know what some of y'all are thinking. Yes, we should continue to pray that Jesus' kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. But our ultimate hope and strength and rest in the struggle is knowing that the small measure of kingdom justice that we taste in this life is but an appetizer for the feast of kingdom justice that will come when the just king returns. Believers, allow the fact that Jesus is coming back to render final judgment to satisfy your inward sense of a need for perfect justice in this world. Secondly, allow the impending return and judgment of Jesus to free you to forgive freely. Every wrong done to you, every wrong you've done to somebody else, every abuse you've experienced, every one of your abusive acts, every offense in the universe will ultimately be paid for. Either it will turn out to have been paid for by Christ on the cross, or it will be paid for at final judgment. And this fact frees you to forgive freely. Jesus has freely forgiven you of your offenses and all those who hurt you, who do wrong by you or wrong by the ones that you love, either will experience the same grace from the Lord that you experienced or will pay for it themselves for all eternity when Jesus renders his final judgment. Either way, brothers and sisters, we can place our hurt in the hands 
of the judge and be free to forgive. Allow the fact that Jesus is coming back to rent a final judgment free you to freely forgive. Thirdly, allow the impending return and judgment of Jesus to motivate you for godly living in this life. Now, we don't have time to dig deep into it, but our Thessalonian passage exhorts believers waiting on the return of Christ to live as children of the day. It says that in chapter 5, verse 5. In other words, let the fact that Jesus is coming back one day motivate you to live like his sheep today. Let it motivate you to live a godly life. A life characterized, as Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 through 8, by vigilance and self-control, a life of faith, love, and hope, and a life as we've already seen by, uh, characterized by Jesus in our Matthew passage, by active, compassionate care for the least of these, my brothers. A godly life is a life that leans on the grace of the good shepherd to live like his sheep in this life. Brothers and sisters, allow the fact that Jesus is coming back to render final judgment to motivate you to live godly lives. Finally, allow the impending return and judgment of Jesus to drive you to urgently share the gospel. Judgment is coming. We don't know when, but it is surely coming. And you, believer, possess the message, the truth, the gospel, the good news, the faith that turns goats to sheep. You know and you have experienced the power of the gospel, the gospel that declares that Christ has come to die to pay the eternal penalty for goats in order to make them his beloved sheep. So brothers and sisters, don't be stingy with the currency of the gospel. Allow the impending reality of the return of Jesus to render final judgment, to satisfy your inward sense of a need for perfect justice in this world, to free you to forgive freely, to motivate you for godly living, and to drive you to urgently share the gospel of grace. Before I close, I have to also say, if you are not a believer this morning, if you have not placed your faith and hope in Jesus Christ alone, do it today. Hear me. I, I'm not making a suggestion. I am pleading with you. Do it today. Today is the day of salvation. God's free, unmerited grace is available today. And there's no guarantee that it will be tomorrow. For tomorrow is not promised. Please hear me. If you're out there trying to live this life on your own, trying to Live this life outside of a committed relationship with Jesus Christ. 
you are not okay. Your soul is dehydrated, and this world has nothing but salt water to offer you. I beg you today, come to the refreshing spring of God's eternal grace and mercy. During communion today, there will be folks up here in these red chairs, and there will be folks in the back in the red chairs. If you're not a believer this morning or you have more questions about what that even means, please go talk to them. Let them pray for you. Jesus is coming back to judge you. I hope we will all be ready. Let me pray. Lord, we pray you would melt cold hearts even now. That you would open blind eyes to see even now. That you would save, that you would turn goats to sheep even now by your powerful and effectual grace. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Crack the sky today if it be your will. We, your sheep, Long to see your face. We long to hear those sweet words from your lips. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Come, Lord Jesus, and give us strength in you as we wait. In your name we pray. Amen.